About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Groback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are doing Peril at End House, first published in the U.S. This is now starting to be a little bit of a trend. Yeah, a trend and I like. It was serialized. This has happened before. It was serialized in Liberty over the summer of 1931. And it was published in February of 1932 by Dodd Mead. And then in in the UK by Collins Crime Club the next month in March. It's a little weird to me that these are getting published in the US first now. But there we have it. Live and learn. I assume that that will shift to a first UK publication at some point. Because that's at least how I always understood it worked. But maybe not. I don't know. We're kind of learning that as we look more closely at the, the history, publication the publication dates. Yeah. 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 Shall we talk about our victim? We shall. All right. This is a little complicated, but we'll we'll get there. Um, <laughs> it seems that our victim, emphasis on the word seems, is Nick Buckley, an elfin little, shall we say, dare we say, manic pixie dream girl. Oh, I think we should say it. <laughs> she owns the ramshackle, if sort of romantic with a capital R, end house in Cornwall. It is absolutely romantic. It's it's crumbling and in gorgeous disrepair. Holdark is totally about to run out of the woodwork here. He would fit right in. Oh my god, with his <laughs> sexy curly okay, hair Catherine. and okay. shirtless Um, (laughs) You've redeemed me. I am your humble servant. And I love you. I'm fanning myself (laughs) while we speak. (laughs) So Nick Buckley seems to keep almost getting offed. And Mr. Poirot, who is down there in Cornwall, this this all takes place on the Cornish coast, we should mention. Mr. Poirot. He's on vacay. He's on vacay, as, as he so often is in, in these novels. And with Captain Hastings, I'm happy to report that we Yay! are back once more to a novel narrated in the first person by Captain Hastings. You know, we complained a lot about Captain Hastings. And, and then when he's back as the narrator, it's like, oh, my God, this is such a relief to us. Like, how yeah. exciting is this? It really is, because the mystery of the blue train, we had Poirot in third person and a Poirot that didn't show up until so late. And here it just feels like coming home. Hastings is talking directly to us. They're there on page one. I was in. Yeah, so Poirot and Hastings, they're on the Cornish coast on holiday, and they decide to take it upon themselves to determine just who might be trying to kill this Nick Buckley. Perhaps Poirot should know better. Perhaps he should have already sussed out that Nick Buckley maybe trouble. I think he actually kind of does realize that, as does Hastings, and they're charmed by her, as many a gentleman have been charmed by a manic pixie dream girl. Indeed. To their great detriment. She's just there listening to the shins on her headphones. And <laughs> this is going to change your life. <laughs> what are you listening to? The shins. You know them? No. You gotta hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to, uh, I gotta fill out your forms. Conundrum. Think you could, uh, maybe listen yeah, while I you could? I can it. Yeah, okay.
I'm embarrassed that I apparently know a line from Garden State. Yeah, apparently you do. I, th- I think I think that we should both be embarrassed for the fact that I obviously <laughs> immediately understood your reference. Right. <laughs> and as far as the suspects go, so we have Charles Weiss, who is Nick's cousin, who is also her lawyer. He is, quote unquote, quite good and worthy, but very dull. And because I guess she has limited relations left, he stands to inherit Endhouse as Nick's essentially next of kin. Next, we have Freddie Rice, and that is Freddie as in Frederica, mm-hmm. Nick's BFF. And Freddie is still married, although her husband has run off to France with her money and left her much cash poorer and also, unfortunately, addicted to cocaine. <laughs> and this is going to be the first of many references to cocaine in this story. Yeah, it's a surprisingly so much cocaine that even Sherlock Holmes would probably blanch a little. Seriously. It's critical to a lot of the book. It is. No, it it 100% is. And it is suffused in a way that is unusual for a Christie novel. I mean, there are certainly drugs in other novels and drug addicts, but there are a whole hell of a lot of them here. A bunch of them in this. A bunch of them. (laughs) So back to Freddie. She is described by both Hastings and Poirot as a Madonna. There's a lot of description about what she looks like. She's odd-looking and ethereal and... Very pale. Being addicted cocaine I think also (laughs) makes her look a a little strange she doesn't really have a motive except maybe for the fact that she's addicted to drugs so she's desperate for any money even a pittance and she has this deadbeat husband also who is probably a drag on her finances or certainly not helping her so she it is ascertained at some point in the novel that she is the named beneficiary in Nick's will. Perhaps there is a motive there. Then we have Jim Lazarus. We're going to come back to him a few times because he is a capital J Jew. Mm. And to be clear, we're saying it that way, not because we are disapproving of the fact that Jim Lazarus is Jewish, but because... It becomes so immediately uncomfortable in this book that... Yes. We're going to, again, circle back to this, but this is... uh, We've talked about some of the anti-Semitism before, but this is excruciatingly bad. I think this might be the worst example that we've come across thus far. Yeah. He's described when he's introduced as, quote-unquote, rolling in money, of course. He's a Jew, of course, but a frightfully decent one and devoted to Freddie. Yeah. So he's an art dealer. He also doesn't really have a motive outside of the fact that he's been trying to get a painting off of Nick. We can come back to that, too. Oh, we will come yeah, back to that. But so he he's tried to get a painting. He's very interested in the paintings at in at Nick's estate at End House. Yeah, at End House. Yes. And you know, he is very, very dedicated to Freddie and in love with her, clearly. I wouldn't say that he has any motive outside of the painting, potentially. Yeah, the motive is hazy. Next we have Commander George Challenger of the British Navy, and Captain Hastings is quite enamored of his strength of character in military service. And understandably, that means that he is then very suspicious because as Poirot casually mentions, Hastings' instincts are so off that if Hastings <laughs> likes someone, they're that means suspicious. that there's probably something wrong yeah. with them. Yeah. <laughs> Commander Challenger has a huge thing for Nick. He is very much in love with her, and that becomes a complicated 
sort of an emotion due to future developments that we will get into. So therein, his emotional attachment to Nick lies a potential also hazy motive. There's a kind of a common thread here, which is that everyone's motives are sort of hazy and not really making sense. And when we get to solving this mystery puzzle, that will all make sense. Right. The curious thing about this book is that nobody's motive makes sense. No one's. Then we have Mr. and Mrs. Croft, and they are Australians who rent the guest lodge on the End House estate. They are extremely nosy people. Mm-hmm. They keep wandering on up to End House and butting into Nick's affairs. They are the ones who poke Nick into drafting a will, which when that will is read out much later in the story, we will get to it, seems to benefit them. So that is interesting. And Poirot is suspicious of them from the get-go. There's something weird going on with the Crofts. I could smell a side plot a-coming. Yeah, this is and, this is totally a Christie side and plot. Here. There's a big side plot a coming with them. Mm-hmm. And then we have cousin Maggie. Spoiler alert: she gets offed, <laughs> so probably <laughs> she's not the culprit. Right. But she does seem like there could be some potential there. She's not as glamorous. She's um, described as pretty pious, which is always suspicious. So finally, Michael Seaton. A handsome and rich gentleman caller, a ridiculously rich gentleman caller, who is, when the novel begins, trying to conduct a round-the-world flight. He wants Mm -hmm. to be the first person to circumnavigate the globe, so sort of a Lindberghian. yeah. Not the last time that a fictional version of Lindbergh will feature, quite importantly, in an Agatha Christie novel. No. Michael Seaton is on this round-the-world trip in his airplane, so he is never actually in Cornwall, but he is certainly an important character, and we will get into exactly why and how as we delve into the story. And that is a, I think, rather perfect segue into the world as it appears to be. So the world as it appears to be is that Poirot and Hastings are staying at a resort in Cornwall. And Poirot, is, as we have seen him at the beginning of a number of stories and books, retired. And Hastings is visiting him from Argentina and keeps sort of suggesting cases, etc. And as Poirot and Hastings are talking, something small strikes the ground near where they're sitting on the terrace, which Hastings assumes is a pebble. Poirot picks it up, and as he and Hastings are still mid-conversation, Poirot, rather hastily and rudely, I may add, gets up, runs down the stairs, and proceeds to stumble in front of none other than our dazzling little pixie, Nick Buckley. Nick helps Poirot back to his seat, where in the course of a little light conversation over a dry martini, she tells them oh so airily about how she's recently had three brushes with death in as many days. Poirot seems very interested by this fact and proceeds to induce Nick Buckley to take off her hat, which she does, leaving it behind, as is her addle-headed want, when Commander Challenger comes to collect her for further cocktails inside the hotel. Poirot then draws Hastings' attention to a hole in the hat, which, given the fact that Nick had been complaining about wasps buzzing in her face, you might think was insectile in origin, except that it's too big for that. It is, in fact, the exact size of the spent bullet Poirot had picked up from the ground minutes earlier. Doing a little bit of on-the-scene sleuthing. CSI. Yep, a little bit of CSI there. The bullet is what Hastings mistook for a pebble. Oh, Hastings. And even though it's by no means clear in the text, I think Poirot's fall here was totally intentional. 
I think it was the result of some quick work on the part of those little gray cells. He saw that the bullet must have been meant for Nick based on her position on the terrace and did what he had to do to engage her in conversation. Interestingly, in the Suchet adaptation, which we will get to later, he definitely falls by accident because it's not till after he chats with Nick that he finds the bullet on the ground. So I suppose the scene can be interpreted either way, but the important thing is he realizes, oh mon dieu, her life actually is in jeopardy. She's been laughing off these other attempts on her life, but someone is actually trying to kill her here. And and in front of Monsieur Poirot. In front of Poirot. And the only reason, by the way, that it's not ridiculous that someone was actually taking a shot at her on a crowded terrace of a fancy hotel is that there are these speedboats that are running constantly on the water, making a lot of noise. So the sound of the shot would have been covered up. Machine guns could have gone off. Exactly. And- Yes. Exactly. Poirot becomes insistent that he and Hastings must help out Nick. And just to mention those other three accidents that Nick has laughed off, there is a picture frame hanging above her bed that fell and would have crushed her in her bed if she hadn't been sleeping badly and gotten out of bed. Probably because of all the cocaine. Probably. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> um, there is a boulder that slipped and fell on a footpath down to the Cornish coast. Poldark was not there. Poldark was not there, unfortunately. You've redeemed me. But it missed her. And then she took her car for a drive and there was a problem with it. That was a near escape because she happened to be headed in a direction where she was able to harmlessly run into some bushes rather than having a huge crash. So Poirot insinuates himself into End House and he realizes... He totally invites himself there and is like very meddlesome about it. Yeah. And he realizes that all of her friends are really shady and the Crofts are weird and then he has Nick bring poor cousin Maggie so that she can have someone to protect her but then cousin Maggie dies while she's wearing a shawl of Nick's on it on a night when there were fireworks going and it was dark and everyone assumes that Maggie was mistaken for Nick and that this was the fifth attempt. Poirot at that point decides to loop in Inspector Jap, so he comes on down. Yay! Yay. He's also beside himself, though, because this poor innocent girl has died and he has no idea what is going on. He is completely at wit's end here. I think unless there is a reader with certainly way more intelligence than I have, that's how most readers would feel through 85 to 90% of this book until we get the big revelation in the world as it actually is. I think that the the weird thing about this book is that we talk a lot of time about process and how things are constructed. Mm-hmm. And this is a book where you would be very hard pressed to be able to tell what happened. We do this every week. And I think that if we did not know what the outcome was, I mean, I don't know that I could. Tell. I never. I, mean, I, I never. You? I never would have gotten it. The thing about this, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, where, I, where I think you were going with this is that in this book, the journey that we're taken on, getting to the solution, is quite pleasant and actually really enjoyable. And in, no, in many of these books, it it's is. not many of them, but in some of the books, such as those early thrillers, it's not as enjoyable. But I didn't mind that I was confused or ever feel frustrated. And then the solution is so clever that there was a lot of pleasure in that as well. So the overall effect for a book that is very light on process is quite pleasing and successful and in a way that's unusual for Christie, I think. 
Well, I would say that it's not a puzzle mystery. Mm. Everything is laid in. There's nothing that we're going to come to that was not laid in. But at the same time, I don't think it's designed for the reader to be able to actually figure out what is going to happen. I would push back. I would disagree with that. I still think it's a puzzle mystery. I just think it's a devilishly difficult puzzle mystery that almost no one could solve. By the way, if there is someone out there, if there is a listener who solved this mystery the first time reading through, we would love to hear from you. So long as you're not lying. (laughs) (laughs) So very, very good segue, Kemper, because here is what I would say. We are actually told early on, very early on, the critical element of this. And if you got that immediately, then I think you could actually see what was happening. So the first clue that we got is within the first 30 pages, and Freddie tells Captain Hastings, and they're talking about Poirot's twisted ankle. She basically asks, well, is it really twisted? Did Nick really help him get up? And Captain Hastings is very flustered. And he's like, well, yes, of course. And she says, quote, I'm glad to hear Nick didn't invent the whole thing. She's the most heaven-sent little liar that ever existed, you know. Amazing. It's quite a gift. And I would say that if you're told that a main character has a critical character flaw very early on, maybe you should be very wary of that. Yeah, that's such a good clue because it's coming out of the mouth of someone who we almost immediately are taught to distrust, especially through the upright Captain Hastings' eyes. So it doesn't land home, I think, for most readers the way that it should. Although she is described repeatedly as a Madonna. She's described as looking like a Madonna. Well, yeah, except... Not as being a Madonna. No, but I mean, I think that even the looking like it, I think that there is some tint there towards the fact that she is essentially a good character. I don't think that's in the text early on. I think we're supposed to distrust her. And and the woman is high on cocaine. <laughs> I mean, they're all high on cocaine. <laughs> but who isn't? Yeah, but who like... isn't in this story? Anyway, let's, let's move on to the next clue, which is that there is no reason to murder Nick. Again, we talked about how no one really seems to have a motive here. And that's kind of a clue because... Nick owns this falling apart, rambling estate and house that she can't finance the fixes for. It's heavily in debt. She has these weird lodgers. She is part of this group that's just snorting cocaine left and right. <laughs> that I'm sure is not helping with her finances. So if anything, she should be the one in search of money. And I will note that we get a laundry list. There are two laundry lists that we get oh, in the course of this novel. I love talking about laundry lists. This is becoming, like, one of the most important Agatha Christie tells, and I never knew that it existed until we started doing this podcast, so I'm very happy that this is bearing out in four novels. We get this laundry list when Poirot and Hastings are searching for Nick's will. It took us some time to go through it. Everything was in complete confusion. Bills and receipts were mixed up together. Letters of invitation. Letters pressing for payments of accounts. Letters from friends. We will arrange these papers, said Poirot sternly, with order and method. 
So did he catch so what's that? what's the critical right element? Letters pressing <laughs> yeah, for payment ding, of accounts. Ding, ding. She is in debt. She has money problems. And we know from all of the previous, especially Poirot novels that we've done, that characters with money problems, that is not an, a, a problem to be discounted. So she needs the money. If anyone has a clear motive when it comes to money, it's Nick herself. And the fact that no one seems to really have a clear motive to murder Nick is troubling and should just make us question what exactly is going on here. Right. And then clue number three, Nick's name is not Nick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. She ends up saying as an aside, basically, that her name is Magdala. And that it's a family name. That Magdala is a family name. She was Mm -hmm. called Little Nick because she lived with her grandfather, who was called Old Nick, because he was kind of devilish. So we know that her real name is Magdala and that there are other Magdalas in her family. And then we do know that her cousin's name is Maggie. So... Dun, dun, dun! An extremely astute reader might thereby deduce that Maggie's full name is also Magdala, meaning there are two Magdala Buckleys. And if you got there, you win a prize because no way in hell I would have gotten there. It's about nicknames. It's about looking at somebody's name and seeing, like, her name clearly was not Nick, and Maggie's name, clearly her name was not Maggie. If it's... Margaret or something. I mean, that would have been a reasonable assumption, but they're both named Magdala. Clue number four is Michael Seaton, the fiance. It's another laundry list because the fact that Michael Seaton is even important to this story is not apparent until about halfway through the story when we realize that Nick Buckley says she was engaged to him. And he is mentioned on page three in the course of a laundry list of news stories. And I wrote in my margin, laundry list, something in here is significant. And lo and behold, there you go, Michael Seaton. I think the assumption here is that there is something slightly off base with this. Right, like if Nick, who's such a chatterbox, was secretly engaged to Michael Seaton, who's this daredevil flying around the world, she really didn't tell anyone, not even her best friend Freddie, not anyone. Come on. Right. Yeah, it seems super, super weird. So that goes on to the next clue. Okay, so next clue. This is my favorite clue. As Poirot and Hastings are searching for that will, Poirot starts searching in Nick Buckley's underwear drawer. And Hastings is horrified, but Poirot finds letters from Michael Seaton to his seeming fiance Nick Buckley, and then he starts to read them, which also horrifies Hastings. But we get these letters reproduced in the book, so ding, 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 we know that the letters, there must be something important about them. It's just a typed reproduction. It's not like we get his handwriting, but still. And... Funnily enough, none of the letters have Nick's name in them. They're all written to my dearest or some sort of affectionate greeting. And one of them is written on March 2nd and refers to a letter from the day before, yet we don't have a letter from March 1st. So we know that we don't have all the letters here that Michael Seaton supposedly wrote to his fiancée, which is odd. It's only some of them. And then also we get this casual mention from Nick that she had an appendectomy 
on February 27th. And the reason why she mentions that is because that's why she actually made her will. So we quite recently were given that date. And then this letter is written on March 2nd, which is only a couple of days after that appendectomy. And you'd think that he would have mentioned something about her recovery or the operation. He doesn't mention it at all. The deduction is that these letters weren't written to Nick. And again, I applaud you if you could get there. I certainly couldn't on my own. And that means that Michael Seaton couldn't have been Nick's fiance. And yet... In the other will that we learn about in this story, which is Michael Seaton's will, he names his fiance Magdala Buckley. So given the fact that our super astute reader might have realized there were two Magdala Buckleys, the super, super uber deduction there is that Michael Seaton was in fact engaged to cousin Maggie and not Nick Buckley. It's really hard. It's not, it's not being laid out for you in any kind of easy way. So the other clue is that poor Maggie mentions that, quote, I don't see why Nick should have telegraphed for me the way that she did. Tuesday would have done just as well. That's in a letter that she wrote to her parents once she arrived at Anne House. Right. And so Nick pretends to Poirot that she wasn't going to invite Maggie, right? Poirot insists on it. Like, right. And she's like, oh, Maggie's so boring. I thought I was going to get out of having to invite right. her this and season. Right. And Poirot's like, Poirot's like, no, 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 You should invite her. That would be like right. a really good thing that you invited her. And so if that's the case, pious Maggie probably is not lying. No, I mean, she has no reason to lie to her parents in this super boring letter. Right. And so what's the disconnect? Why is Nick lying to Poirot? And then Maggie dies. So before we get to exactly who did it and how, there is another attempt made on Nick's life, a sixth attempt, and that is something that filling we... Filling a chocolate box with Coke. Yeah, filling a chocolate box with cocaine. Rather similar to a story that we recently read, The Chocolate Box. Mm-hmm. And Nick eats the chocolate, and she eats enough to get extremely sick, but to not quite die. Poirot bandies it about, however, that she did, in fact, die, because he's so clueless and has no idea what's going on that he's desperate enough to just spread this misinformation Poirot and see what happens. Poirot is really bad in this book. He is like a really yeah. bad detective in this book, and I think that that's just generally unusual. We're used to the moment in these books. It's become a cliche when the detective says, oh, I've been such a fool. I should have seen it from the beginning. But usually they're just being modest and they at least knew something. Poirot is just like figured out. off Poirot's base. Nothing. He oh. knows nothing. He's completely been taken in by Nick Buckley because the solution is that Nick Buckley is had the murderer. She's the murderer. She meant to murder her cousin Maggie, who was engaged to Michael Seaton. And Michael Seaton had just inherited his rich uncle's estate because his uncle died while he was going around the world. So when Nick Buckley got news that Michael Seaton was missing, she essentially assumed that, oh, fingers crossed he's dead. And started faking. And the next day, started faking these attempts on her life. So that she could bring her cousin to End House and then murder Mm -hmm. her cousin. And murder her cousin because then she knew about the will because poor cousin Maggie must have read out Michael Seaton's letters to 
her cousin Nick right. on the phone or whatever, and she knew that she had a good shot at claiming that she had been Michael Seaton's fiance rather than her cousin Maggie, and then she would thereby inherit all that money because she needed it. And I have to say, normally in these stories, there's not a lot of dwelling done on grief over a victim from loved ones, but there's an interesting sequence in which Poirot interviews Maggie's parents... Mm-hmm. who just are these simple Yorkshire folk. And they come down essentially to collect the body. And they are heart-stricken. And they're just totally broken up with about, about the fact that their daughter is dead. And then they leave. I don't even think Parr even really learns anything in that scene. It just makes you feel really bad for them and for the fact that Maggie's yes. dead. It's appalling what happens. Well, yeah, so let's talk about what happens. We know how Nick was the murderer, but there's this big final scene at End House where Poirot gathers everyone together and they actually read out Nick's will. Remember, Nick's will Nick is supposed missing. to be dead, by the way. Nick is supposed to be dead, and only Hastings and the reader know that Nick is, in fact, not dead. They all come for the reading of the will, and this will, Nick had said that she had posted it to her cousin, Charles Weiss, who's also her lawyer, but Charles said, yeah, I never received it, so Nick's will had been missing. No one can find it. And then the day after he tells everyone that Nick is dead, the will suddenly appears in the mail in Charles Weiss's mailbox. So he reads out the will and the sole beneficiary of the will is not Freddie Rice, but Mrs. Croft. Right. Because she supposedly did a good turn to Nick's father in Australia back in the day. And Mrs. Croft says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't say what it was because it's a secret and I'm going to take it to my grave. But I'll never say that there wasn't gratitude in the world. And she's just, she's, she's very modest about it and she's so thankful. And this, of course, is all a total lie and a fabrication because the Crofts are forgers and bit, super this criminals. Is, this is a little bit. But like also like in the veiled lady, how I totally thought of that too. Do you know because where Jap kind of like jumps out is like <laughs> Gertie. Hello, hello, hello. What's this? An old friend, Millie Burton. I declare. I don't know what was happening with that accent toward the end there, but... I mean, I think we're all horrified on your behalf. Oh, Jimmy Jab. <laughs> That's why Mr. Croft was encouraging her to write a will, because she wrote the will, had it witnessed, he gave it to him to mail. He, of course, didn't mail it, and then forged this fake one, and they thought they would get away with it, because they think that Nick is dead. After the will is read out, and everyone's like, oh my god, Mrs. Croft gets all the money, then Poirot says, I know, let's hold a seance, and see if we can yes. hear from Nick Buckley. And we'll get to the adaptation, of course, as we always do. It was even funnier in the adaptation, but it's still pretty funny in the book because Poirot's like, well, Hastings is actually a really gifted medium. And Hastings is like, wait, why me? Why are you choosing me? He's completely floored by this. And poor Hastings is just sitting there like a rock because he can't even think of what to do. And Poirot's like, oh, he's he's receiving the spirit. And it's this wonderfully lighthearted moment. And then, of course, what happens is that Nick Buckley appears and people are supposed to think she's a ghost, but it's actually her. So the Crofts are outed as the forgers that they are, since Nick knows that that's not the will that she made. But there is this odd moment after Nick appears and the Crofts are outed. There is someone else outside, much to everyone's surprise. And And it's Mr. Rice. 
It's Mr. Rice, yeah. So it's Freddie Rice's ne'er-do-well husband who was a drug addict and who she wasn't able to divorce. And he has come back seemingly to shoot her slash himself. That's at least what we think happened. It's a little unclear from the text, but that's what we think his intent was. We were actually a little bit confused about what happened. So if any of you out there (laughs) have a better idea... The first shot, he shot into the house at his wife, Freddie, and it hit her arm, so he missed her, and then he seemingly shot himself, because when he then staggers into the house, he is in his death throes, and then he dies, seemingly at his own hand. So, that happens, and then we get to Nick Buckley, who admits, yes, Hercule Poirot, you solved it all. So, Freddie, could I borrow your watch? And Freddie's like, okay. And Poirot, essentially, what he allows to happen is for Nick Buckley to kill herself by ingesting a tremendous amount of cocaine because the watch is where the cocaine that Commander Challenger, the seemingly upright Navy commander who Captain Hastings likes so much, he's a drug dealer. He's the one that's been supplying everyone with cocaine. So, yeah, Nick Buckley ingests the cocaine off scene and Poirot is totally okay with that, which is so interesting, especially given the fact that we had that scene with Maggie's parents, because maybe they would have liked to have asked Nick Buckley a little bit more about why she killed their daughter or like maybe what were my daughter's last words. I think the end of this book is distressing. His decision to allow her to commit suicide seems to be so off the cuff and almost flippant, he says, it is the best way, better than the hangman's rope, but we must not say so before Mr. Vice, who is all for law and order. It's practically jocular. And it's like, this woman is about to kill herself. This is not, this is not a happy outcome. No, I think the morality in this is really off base. Why does Nick get the mercy of being able to kill herself? She should have to... She's awful. She's she's one of the worst. She should have to pay for what she did. She should have to confront Maggie's parents if her parents want to confront her, which maybe they would have wanted to. I completely disagree with Poirot here, and there are many... We will get to them. There are many other instances in which Poirot's love of the extrajudicial solution I find appropriate, and I would applaud, but this is certainly not one of them. No, and we have talked about this a lot, that sometimes he realizes that the actual criminal justice system fails. Right. And so he is uh, allowing justice to happen in a way that he thinks corrects the order of the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is, I find it inexplicable, to be completely honest. Like, I don't know why he does this. I have no explanation for it. And I find it slightly upsetting. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, earlier in the book, he does say evil never goes unpunished, but the punishment is sometimes secret. Maybe to his Catholic view in Catholicism, suicide is unforgivable. You do not right. go to, you do not yeah. go to heaven. It's essentially eternal damnation. So right. it, it's a curious beat within this story for sure. The the ending is it's like we it's like listening to a diverting and like at times dark but pleasing musical piece, and then the final note is off and discordant and you're like oh ah, okay i mean it doesn't ruin the whole experience but it's a jarring way to end no 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 agreed i completely agree with you Yeah. yeah should we talk a little bit about the adaptation Yeah, sure. Uh, The adaptation is really true to the book. The adaptation is very true to the book. Interestingly, this was the first 
Poirot novel that the David Suchet series chose to adapt. And <laughs> it, was I promise, very early, it was very early on that. It, oh, it's very early. It's the first and second episode because it's also one of the few, maybe only, I'm not sure. I actually screen captured it and I will put it up on Instagram because it's so unusual to have a to be continued on a Poirot and you get sort of like Hastings and Poirot from behind and it's like to be continued. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that ever really happens again because then we just get the longer episodes, but it was the first and second episode of the second season slash series. And I promise I won't talk as much about David Suchet's book as I do the autobiography, but Suchet does go on a lot in his book about how much he loves Peril at End House. And having just read actually his effusiveness about the book might be coloring my effusiveness of the book, but he thinks that it's really underrated. And I kind of agree with him because I think that the trick of the names is something that Christie would go on to do a lot more. We'll see it again and again. So I think the trick gets diluted for readers of her entire canon. And then it's something so many other writers went on to do that I don't think it seems quite as clever as, for example, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd still does. But it is. I think it's really clever and elegant. And he had a lot of affection for the novel, David Suchet. For me, this episode, just all of the main four characters had such good moments. They're great. They're great. Poirot and Hastings get stuck looking at photographs with the Crofts, who are Australian. And apparently showing lots of photos is something that Australians typically do. The man who invented the camera has a lot to answer for, mon ami. Nice people. Typical Australians. In the novel, they say cooey to each other, which is something that Christie brought up in the Sidderford mystery as well. Is that something that Australians actually say? They call cooey to each other. I know we have quite a number of Australian listeners. If anyone could shed light on that, that's something that I've never come across other than in Christie's depiction of Australians. There were two things that the adaptation did differently from the book that I think improved it. One was excising the weird murder-suicide thing with Freddie's husband at the end. He's just not there. That was fine. And then when Poirot pretends to everyone that Nick Buckley is dead, the audience is not in on that. Whereas the reader is in on it in the novel, and it is much more effective, I thought, in the episode for us to also think that Nick Buckley has died. I liked that change a lot. Right. It could have been done in the book because we are coming from Captain Hastings' perspective. I know. It's interesting. In the book, Captain Hastings gets sick. Yeah. And it's this obvious device just to keep him in a hotel so that even though he knows what's going on, he doesn't have to pretend because we all know no one is worse at pretending or Captain not spilling the beans. Yeah. yeah. His card should say, like, professional bean spiller <laughs> <laughs> underneath it. I will say that Miss Lemon is only in part two, but we get several ravishing dresses that Miss Lemon wears. We and do. We do not se- normally get to see her out of professional attire. I know, and seancing. Oh, my God. So the seance <laughs> scene, this time Poirot because Miss Lemon is there and it's a nice little character beat because Miss Lemon does at least say that she's interested in the spirit world, but she is as horrified as Hastings is in the book when Poirot just says, ah, Miss Felicité Lemon is here and she is a wonderful medium and she's like, mm? <laughs> but of course, since she's Miss Lemon and she's resourceful, she's actually quite good at pretending. Now I know that she does not like to have it bruited about, but Mademoiselle Felicité Lemon has the pronounced powers of the medium. Now, we are all here. We are seated around the table. Let us hold a seance. Oh, 
Oh, I don't. Wonderful idea. Already, Mademoiselle Le Mans? No. I'll turn the lights out. Now, please, if you please, we must have the complete silence. Yes, she is now going into her trance. Is there anybody there? There's this actually lovely look where Poirot is proud of her because he's like, yeah, I knew I knew Miss Levitt would know what to do. One other thing I'd, li- I'd like to note is that David Suchet had a list of approximately 70 character quirks that he wrote down because part of his research for creating the character of Poirot was to read every single Poirot novel and story before season one. And he had this whole list of things, and one of them was that Poirot will not eat two eggs if they're different sizes. And that is a throwaway reference in this very book. And I love the fact that in the adaptation of it, they made it this funny scene where Poirot is beside himself already because he can't figure out what's going on in this case because he's horrible. (laughs) And he's a horrible detective in this story. And then he takes the lid off of the eggs. I cannot eat these eggs. They are of totally different sizes. And Hastings and Mrs. Lemon just look at each other like, God. The Majestic Hotel, by the way, the decor of it, I liked what they were doing where they were going for this extremely modernistic thing, which they normally do, the whole Art Deco 30s thing. But it was so white and stylized that it seemed really fake. Whenever they went into the elevator, I was like, that's not an elevator. That's not real. It was a rare set design misstep, I thought. Well, there are two kinds of Art Deco. There's Streamline Modern, mm-hmm. and then there's Continental Style. Mm-hmm. And so they actually changed the set decoration in Poirot in the television series between the Streamline Modern that is the early season. So it's super, super, super white walls, black lacquer, and metal Mm. and very limited color. Mm -hmm. I think this might also make sense that they went darker in the later episodes. They switched to Continental Deco. Mm. So it's wood inlay furniture Mm -hmm. and dark colored rugs and velvet. So texturized materials like that. And so there is a distinct visual shift between the earlier episodes and the later episodes. They're both deco, but they are different kinds of deco that are happening. That's really interesting. And I think these two episodes, more than any others, really show the extremity of that streamlined first uh-huh. one. Because it is it is so white and it's so simple that it doesn't look real. It's not very livable. No. I mean, I would think of it as Los Angeles or London deco because they have similar versions of that streamlined modern versus that kind of continental deco. So people who are design nerds uh, (laughs) can feel free to correct me, but this is definitely my perception of it. That makes sense. Let's move on to the rankings and our first category of plot mechanics. I think that we sometimes have an argument on this podcast about plot mechanics versus plot credibility. As in which means what, because we're kind of not sure half the time. Uh Uh-huh. To my mind, plot mechanics is the... A to B to Z to C to D to how you get there. 
Exactly. And the plot credibility is just about, are people acting like people? Is this something that holds together, given that these are supposed to be actual human beings and not the cards in a deck Mm -hmm. that P.D. James accused Agatha Christie of sometimes creating? So I think this is a book where I agree with you that plot credibility is extremely high. So I would agree with your eight, actually. And the plot mechanics, you're right. And we talked about this in the beginning, how this doesn't feel quite like a mystery puzzle because we're in confusion for so much of it and even though yes the clues are seated in there both Poirot and the reader doesn't really get there until the very very end it's certainly lopsided the way that the A to B to C to D is working I still think that the fact that once we get the solution everything that seemed confusing becomes simple it's like everything was scrambled and then all of a sudden it's smooth I love that and I think that does go to plot mechanics so that's why I would give it higher than a five the thing about the difficulty of getting there this is not a case in which we have to get there by way of people not acting like people this is not a case in which anything no, is... No, everybody acts like people. Everybody acts like people. Drug-addled people, greedy people, evil people, pious people. Like, there's all sorts of people very well rendered and acting as one would expect. Yeah. All right. Well, so what do you want to settle on? A seven. Seven? Yeah. All right. Okay. Plot mechanic seven, plot credibility eight. And then I think we were in agreement on the series long characters. This is the book that we're ranking. So leaving aside how much we loved the crew in the adaptation, the characters here are just, there's no Miss Lemon, unfortunately, but they're fantastic. There are so many. They're really, really good. The dialogue is delightful. I mean, Hastings and Poirot are so good in this. Hastings and Poirot have so many great moments. The only one that I would like to pull out is that we get a barrage of Poirot poking fun at Hastings and just being merciless to him as he often is and essentially saying how his instincts are bad and how stupid he is and Hastings even gets a little annoyed with it and then in the middle of the book we get this wonderful moment where they're talking about who is sentimental, Poirot or Hastings, and the answer is that they're both actually kind of sentimental, but Poirot is then inspired to speak about Hastings in front of Hastings, and poor Hastings has to tell us this, and it's all very uncomfortable for him, but he says, Hastings has a singularly beautiful nature. It has been the greatest hindrance to me at times. Don't be absurd, Poirot. And then Poirot continues. He is, to begin with, reluctant to see evil anywhere, and when he does see it, his righteous indignation is so great that he is incapable of dissembling. Altogether a rare and beautiful nature. No, mon ami, I will not permit you to contradict me. It is as I say. And Hastings tellingly just moves on. As in the narrator of the story, he does not comment on that. He just reports it and moves on. And I feel like it's because he's crying because he's so touched by it. Altogether a rare and beautiful nature. I love that. I do too. So lots of great Hastings and Poirot moments. And just for Poirot in general, and we've touched on a lot of these already, there are a lot of elements to Poirot's character that we've either seen before and that gets solidified here or that just kind of fill him out as a person. Hastings mentions how Poirot always has kindly feelings for lovers, which we've, you know, we yes. saw at first in Mysterious Fair Styles that that continues here. Well, and also the damage here that Poirot does is going to come up again. We've talked about his sense of justice before, and we've talked about his inability to overlook, for example, damsels in distress 
there are a lot of things happening in this book that are just going to keep coming back up. Poirot's whole tendency toward extrajudicial punishment, be that a religious motivation, or also just his own conceit, it's often used for comedic effect how pompous Poirot is. But the, the true downside to that, and he even he has this moment of personal theology where he says, you know, other people say, oh, we'll leave it up to God. And, and his answer to that is, well, God created Hercule Poirot, so God wanted me to be the one yeah. to solve. And it's even supposed to be funny when he says it, but the thing about it's that is that Poirot thinks he's funny. above... It's not funny. Poirot thinks he's above the law. He thinks he's above everything. And that's not great. And we see that at the end here when he just lets Nick Buckley go off and kill herself. And we already talked about why that's not necessarily so great. And we will see this coming up again. <laughs> the one character trait I wanted to bring up also that we learned about Poro in the story is that there's this lovely sequence in which Jap clearly gets drunk. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and Jap refers to Parse mustache. He refers to it as face fungus, <laughs> which might be the best description of a mustache I've ever heard, actually. Like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone call it face fungus, but absolutely. Thank you, Jimmy Jap. And Poirot says to Jap that he has never disguised himself and kind of implies that he never would. And... I was thinking back to it, and I was like, I think he's right, because we've seen David Suchet playing Poirot disguise himself, such as in The Veiled Lady. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that was not the case in the story. And it's interesting that that is the one of the—I think that's the only time I can think of a trait in the Suchet series that is contradicted in the Christie canon because Suchet was so meticulous about being true to those books. So it's, it's a small thing and I don't mind that it's different, but I I just thought it was worth bringing up series long characters. I would give it a nine. Yeah. You might be right. This deserves a nine. Yeah. And then book specific characters are also great. Nick and Freddie. I thought it felt almost contemporary. Yeah. Not really, but I mean, to an extent because they felt real. Mm -hmm. Do you think now that we've been talking about this for an hour, do you think I'm wrong about that? I know. I don't think you're wrong about that. I think it absolutely feels contemporary. And it's funny because there was a passage in the book that I highlighted for setting and tone, but I actually think it goes more toward the contemporaneity of these characters. And it's really early on when we're introduced to Freddie Rice as a character. And we get this great little detail that Freddie, in trying to divorce her husband, Here's what Christy writes. She got hold of him and put it to him, and he said he was perfectly willing, but he simply hadn't got the cash to take a woman to a hotel. So the end of it all was she forked out, and he took it, and off he went, and has never been heard of from that day to this. Pretty mean, I call it. That's Nick speaking. And I highlighted it because at first it was incomprehensible to me, because I was like, what is she talking about? And then when I realized what was happening there is that Freddie wanted to divorce her husband, but this is in the days before no-fault divorce, so there had to be a reason why. And it was on Facebook was what she was asking him to do. So she was asking him to, in a sort of public way, take a woman to a hotel and thereby declare, I'm being unfaithful to you so that she could get her divorce. This is actually kind of goes to what Agatha Christie struggled with when she went through her own divorce and she wanted to be able to name Nancy Neal as the person that he was having an affair with. He refused because he wanted to subsequently marry her. But this is the kind of detail that makes it feel real. It's the same reason why when you read Jane Austen, those characters feel like real people. And I, no one's going to use the word 
contemporary for Jane Austen, but you certainly use the word real. There's a reason why people are still so willing to read Pride and Prejudice, and it's because Lizzie seems so much like a real person. Absolutely, and we're not often able to compare Jane Austen and Dame Agatha Christie's writing, but I think we just did. Yeah, except with a bunch of cocaine high, <laughs> with a bunch of cocaine high murderers and Lizzie Bennet. <laughs> <laughs> well rendered, Dame Agatha. I think a seven is right for the book specific yeah. characters. That's what yeah. you suggested. I, I think right. a seven is right. And then, yeah, let's talk about setting and tone, which normally does rather badly in these books, but the setting is fantastic. Cornwall. And house. We, <laughs> it's Cornwall, which which is very well rendered. The Majestic Hotel, which was actually based, apparently, on the Imperial Hotel at Torquay, which is where Agatha Christie grew up. It feels like it, because it feels like a real place. And then, and house, we said it was romantic with a capital R, because... That's what yes. it seems like because it seems like Ram a specific shackle. house, and I could I could picture yes. it. I could picture it with the little hidden and the panel por- and the portraits and on the walls. This seems like a real place. Yeah, um, it seems like you can see and smell the sea. Yep, in it. Yeah, it feels suffused with the sea somehow. Yeah, I totally agree. It might also just be that I was really missing Poldark. So <laughs> you've redeemed me. <laughs> And the tone, too, other than that discordant final note, and we'll actually get to the final, final note, which is even uh, more discordant in, in one second. In but one um, second. The tone yeah. is, for a book that's quite confusing, it, it certainly moves along, and it's diverting yet dark. One thing that we're left with is the hope that Mr. Lazarus is going to court Freddie, Freddie. who's now free since her husband is dead. Killed himself, uh, Like a minute ago. So she's now a widow. Although she's gunshot wounded. Right, that's true. She does have blood trickling down her arm, but yeah, she'll be fine. It's a flesh wound. (laughs) The uh, the, uh, only other thing I I will say, and maybe it's a stretch appending this to setting in tone, but I did really appreciate, now that we're meticulously going through all of these novels, how many references there were to previous Poirot novels and stories. We had really strong references to Mystery of the Blue Train, Mm -hmm. The Mysterious Affair at Styles, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Mm -hmm. and even The Chocolate Box, which we just did last week. So I very much appreciated that. Yeah, I would give setting and tone an eight. Yeah, I agree. Which is very high for us. I think we both agree that's generally the weakest element. Absolutely, and it's quite strong here. So let's talk about Stuck in Its Time, because we do have some discussion here, unfortunately. We already talked about the anti-Semitism inherent in the introduction of Jim Lazarus. But it's, it gets some, way worse. It gets way worse. There is a final moment at the end of this book, and this also was excised from the adaptation, smartly. For good reason. Because there is one little side plot we mentioned it briefly in the beginning. We said that Jim Lazarus is interested. He's an art dealer and he's been interested in these paintings at End House. And there's something that has just been puzzling Monsieur Poirot throughout the entire novel, which is that Jim Lazarus offered, I believe it was 50 pounds for a painting, and Poirot had the painting valued, and he knows that it actually was only worth 20 pounds. But since Jim Lazarus is... Jewish, he is perplexed as to why someone of Mr. Lazarus's beliefs, who is supposed to be one that values money, but obviously would also know the true valuation of this painting, why he would offer more money than it's worth. And he just can't figure out why this is the case. 
so bad. Yeah, so these are the the final lines where basically Poirot says, Mr. Lazarus, what was the deal with overvaluing that painting? And Mr. Lazarus explains, well, I did that because do you see this other painting over here that's next to that one? And, And Poirot says, yes, and then... And then this is Mr. Lazarus speaking. The picture on the far wall is worth at least 5,000 pounds, said Lazarus dryly. Ah, Poirot drew a long breath. Now I know everything, he said happily. Basically what he did was he picked the cheap painting that had emotional value to Nick. And Mm -hmm. he offered a price for it that was too high. Then Nick still was very confused about that and didn't want to give it to him. And... He had no interest in that painting. He had interest in this other painting. Basically, if he was going to over-ask for a garbage painting, then he could under-ask by, like, thousands of pounds for the truly for valuable painting, on the painting. Wall. because he knew that Nick would know that it was overvalued and then she would just right. assume that if he mm-hmm. came in really low that that other painting must also be garbage. Right. <laughs> Correct. So Poirot is, you know, oh, everything everything makes sense now because of course the Jewish character actually is interested in money. Yep. That is how the book ends. That's literally the last lines of the book. That is some Merchant of Venice level anti-Semitism, Mastis comedy going on here. So the thing is, the anti-Semitism, when it comes up, it is egregious. And it is so egregious to end on that note that if not for that final moment, I would say this is a case of deducting one or two points. But it left such a horrible taste in my mouth that I think we need to deduct four for this, for that alone. Yeah, that's totally valid. It's really anti-Semitic. It is deeply anti-Semitic. That brings us to the end of our rankings, and I shall do the tabulating here. So we had a 7 plus 8 plus 9 plus 7 plus 8 minus 4 deductions for a grand total of 35, which puts Peril at End House in second place. What? Two points below the murder of Roger Ackroyd and just one point ahead of the murder at the Vicarage. Oh my gosh. And yeah, our top three right now, gold medal to Roger Ackroyd, silver to Peril at End House, and bronze to the murder at the Vicarage. Oh, hey, and you know what? Out ladies, like good, good job. <laughs> Coked out manic pixie dream girls. Yeah. You, you got your wish. You did you. Um, I would not have predicted that this would rank as well as it did before rereading it, but I am not at all surprised after reading it and discussing it <laughs> as we just did. I was really excited to reread this because I had very good memories of it and I was very pleased with the result. Join us next week when we will be doing not a Poirot short story. We are done, remember, with Poirot Investigates. We are actually going to move on to Miss Marple. Kemper is very excited about this. So excited, Miss Jane Marple in the house. His great love. (laughs) We're going to start with the first short story within the Tuesday Night Club collection. 
And that one is titled, easily enough, The Tuesday Night Club. The Tuesday Night Club! Yeah, so alternately titled The Tuesday Night Club Murders, I believe, or The 13 Problems. So we will be starting with the first, The Tuesday Night Club. So join us for that. And in the meantime, as always, we really do love hearing from you. So please feel free to email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com or tweet at us on our Twitter handle at allaboutthedame or talk to us on Instagram at allaboutagatha or leave some messages on Facebook as some of you have been doing recently and we'd love that on our Facebook page. We love the Facebook messages. They're delightful. All About Agatha. That's our Facebook page. And we so look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.